to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. And the word prodigal, meaning um, recklessly extravagant, the father in the story, it just seems like this would be reckless and extravagant for him to see all that this younger son has done and then to continue to pursue him, just what Jason just talked about. Why? That doesn't make sense. And so we're going to see that today. Today we're going to focus on the younger son, and then next week we're going to focus on the older son, and then in, in two weeks we're going to look at kind of bringing that together. So, so what now? If we realize, even in a church setting, there's some of us that are older brother types, there are some that are younger brother types. As I've said, the, the couple of places I've taught this before, um, probably one of them was really known for the solid theological teaching, and uh, they had never, I just had probably 99 out of 100 people just going, I had never seen this before. I'm 50 years old, 60 years old. I've been living as an older brother type my whole life and didn't even recognize it. And so um, just they're astounded. It was a whole new way of looking at things. Um, so um, the story was told um, based off of this idea that there are people that have overtly clear ways of living that looks like chaos and looks like horrific, painful sin. But then there's others who... If you just look at the externals, everything looks really, really good. And so I've been telling you guys a couple of big things. Is this idea of um, if we're not careful in our camps, we're really afraid of grace. We're afraid of grace for ourselves because what would that, what would that mean? What would that lead to? We're afraid of grace extending it to other people. Because don't they need consequences and limits and lists and rules? Won't that make them more like me? And then also another thing is you are what you love. And so what I've kind of tried to bring out and probably next week bring out some more is that we like to quote that we know about our depravity. But in our camps, we actually love being really, really good people. If you don't believe me, just stop doing one of the things that you're doing. Whatever your little list is, our, our family doesn't go to movies. And I know most people don't have that one, but that's one out there. My mom used to talk about how when she was in church, women couldn't wear pants. So some of you may have even heard about that. Like, so women could not wear pants to church. You were going to hell if a woman wore pants to church. Uh, playing cards. Um, playing cards, they would have, you know, Christians would secretly have, you know, one or two couples over because you couldn't have a whole lot of people and they would play cards because they, they, they considered that either gambling or the devil's work. So playing cards, um, wearing pants. Now we may look at that and go, that's, that's ridiculous. So, but we have our list, don't we? And so if you think that you're not in love with yourself being really, really good, break one of your little rules, your little family rules. I was thinking, I, I, I can't. 
Why not? Because that might lead to even just that statement. People will go, are you saying for us to go jump off the cliff into sin? No, no. I said, maybe you're a parent who's extremely rigid on your two-year-old's schedule. Don't do a schedule for two nights. Oh, my God. We, we, we could, oh, oh, my gosh. I'm a person who's so disciplined. I have my quiet time for an hour. And I, don't do it one day. What, what will that lead to? Won't that lead me to the cliff of, we're afraid of grace. We're afraid of grace in so many ways. Why? Because I love being really, really good. And this is what Jesus was getting at with these Pharisees. And so we're going to see that, especially next week. But um, the word not merely meaning just wayward. So let's read Luke chapter 15. Um, and we're going to read uh, just the, the couple of opening verses. And then I'm going to read the whole section there about the, the, the two sons. Um, so let's read uh, 1, 2, and 3. And then we'll go into the story of the sons. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. So we talked about that first week, that group of people. Why was it that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus? And then the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that is what he prompted and launched off into this story. Jesus enjoying these people, tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees and scribes, the religious people in their rigid stances, and they're the ones who are judging Jesus. And he goes, that kind of heart is just dangerous. Let me tell you three stories. So he goes off into the story of, what's the first one, the lost coin, and then the, I'm sorry, the, the lost sheep, where there's the 99. And it would be reckless to leave the 99 in open pasture, as it says. That would be reckless to leave those and to go after the one. But Jesus says there's rejoicing when that happens. When one person in their recognized brokenness turns to God and enjoys him. Versus this over here. And then he goes into the story of the, the lost coin. Notice in both those stories, there's no human characteristic. There's no human person there making a choice of the will. He, he selects objects, a sheep and a coin, so it's not an issue of a, a human will making that decision. And then he goes building up to the story of the prodigal son. Now he puts in human characters. And he even brings them in to go, hey, you, you men, you women, Think through this. Just think through this. So let's go into the story here. He gets to it in verse, um, was 11. So he said, There's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, my inheritance. And the father, he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. How I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music, and dancing. There's people playing cards and wearing pants. And he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. So let's pray. Father, we um, thank you for your word. We thank you that the Spirit comes and softens hardened hearts opens closed eyes, goes to depths of hearts that we can't even plan on. We thank you because all of that is grace. We thank you for the gifts of conviction, for the gifts of confession of sin, for the gifts of repentance that you bring to us that we must respond to. It takes the human will responding to that. So we pray for both the sovereignty of God and for the human will to work together in a beautiful package that you designed. We pray that you would allow us to be um, truly brought into truth and into grace together. Father, as this world is um, going through many, many things over in the Middle East, as even um, um, the the turmoil that's going on, uh, we know Sujin Pretty's friends um, that are in Kabul um, needing help, We pray for her. She's in a place um, just needing safety. Um, People haven't heard whether she's got out yet. We pray for um, you to bring um, help 
and safety. We pray for the gospel to spread through aid workers, through um, little pockets of believers. Father, we pray for the Krebs family as they're in Jordan, as the Middle East is facing much turmoil. We pray that you would allow there to be safety for them. Um, for some of them, Father, it may be your will for them to stay and not get out and to be a light in complete darkness. Um, some may be losing their lives, but that the gospel would go forward through that. And so we pray for you to strengthen your church there. Would you let your spirit just pour out extravagantly in that place? We pray for the <coughs> churches around here. We pray for First Baptist BA. We pray for the Life Church campuses, for Battle Creek, for Victory, for, for Rhema. We pray that a clear, Jesus-exalting gospel message would go forth. We pray for this area around Peoria and 61st, that you would allow an area enshrouded in darkness for light to come and break forth, extravagant grace to be poured out in an area of people just like us, undeserving. We pray that you would allow that to happen. In your name we pray, amen. So as we look at the first um, section there, um, notice the um, statement that he has there in verse 11. There's a man who had two sons, and the younger of said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property. So first of all, just breaking that down and looking at this younger son, you have to see um, the, the heart, the true heart of the younger son. Um, part of the offensiveness of this request is that the younger son asked for his inheritance now. So this would be unheard of in that time period, that, kind of unheard of in our time period, but it would be unheard of for this um, very well-known, uh, regionally respected, wealthy patriarch of this family that owns all this stuff, and for the younger son to come and say, Father, I want the inheritance that I would get after you're gone. I want it now. And what that's basically saying is, Father, I want your stuff I don't want you. I, I, I'd, I would be happy and my life would be better without you, but with your stuff. So just an amazing um, kind of radical request for the son to make that. Um, what is it that, that younger brother types are driven by? What, what would drive a person to ask this type of question? What would it be? Um, first of all, just some things that are clear for younger brother types. Pleasure. Just seeking pleasure, um, fun, enjoyment, excitement, risks sometimes, freedom. But ultimately, all those put in this package of I'm desiring satisfaction. I'm looking for satisfaction in something, right? And so when we think of, if you think of either Hollywood types or the, the, the crazy rock bands or you know, rap artists or whoever, and you think, man, what a crazy lifestyle, and that's what they're seeking, right? Satisfaction. They're looking for satisfaction. Now, it doesn't mean that older brother types aren't also looking for satisfaction, right? So pleasure, fun, enjoyment, excitement. Um, the idea of I, I want to be satisfied to the greatest depths of my being. It's not that older brother types do not also desire those things. But one type is willing to throw away all order 
and, and all rules and all rule keeping and all modes of safety to pursue this idea of satisfaction. The other type believes that satisfaction is found in the pathway of setting up little careful steps and keeping the rules. In keeping the rules, we will lead, it will lead us to the satisfaction we're looking for. If we're not careful, um, we real easily um, get to the point where um, that satisfaction becomes our God. And so we would like to think that that's just the, the, the younger brother types, the, the super rebellious types, overtly rebellious, but it happens for those who are extremely good rule keepers both inside and outside the church, right? You know lost people who their life is just put together and they're just OCD about everything and everything looks really nice. And Are they happy? Usually not. There's more and more lists they're looking for. There's more and more things because they, they haven't found it. They keep trying and trying and trying. So you see that, lost people. You see it inside the church, right? But notice this, this younger son. Um, the younger brother types, it also has nothing to do with age. So don't think of younger brother types. This is not talking about just someone in their you know, teens or 20s. Um, there are younger brother types in their 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. So it's not an issue of age. I see it in adults in all of those ages. I've sat down with so many men and so many couples, and, that's, and I'm sitting there assessing. Man, are they more older brother types or are they uh, younger brother types? It's one of the first things when I get to know people. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking through those things and, and listening and hearing those things. Um, it's also, it doesn't have to do, it doesn't have to manifest, manifest itself only in overt debauchery and drugs and drunkenness. Uh, that's not the only way it shows up. Um, sometimes it may look like a life of complete, total chaos and debauchery. Other times it may look like a life that's very well put together, very professional. The cars they drive, the neighborhood they live in, the, 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 their lifestyle, it's just very, very nice and put together. And yet the inner cravings reveal they have a desire to throw aside some rules freely to pursue what they want. So um, those younger brother types, we also have to remember it's not age and it's not um, just based on um, what it looks like overtly or externally, but, but even more importantly, and this may be hard for church people, there's not a goal for the younger brother types to become older brother types. Because if we're not careful, we think, oh, the, older, the younger brother types... When they get their life cleaned up, they'll become like me. And Christianity kind of does that, right? Like we, we have these people that, that you know, they're, they're doing whatever, but if we're not careful, we want them to drop their culture. Missionaries face this all the time. And, and they, 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 the, the people in the, the, the lost regions, they be, begin to think that Christianity following Jesus looks like this, dressing like the missionary, talking like the missionary, um, absorbing cultural things from the West. And so missionaries face that all the time. And, and that's, that, that synchronization, is that, that's just wrong. And so um, for people to be a, a younger brother type, they need to live out the gospel as a younger brother type. Um, and, and so older brother types are probably going, oh gosh, that sounds dangerous. We're afraid of grace, right? And so older brother types need to realize the goal is not making people to conform like me, it's to be conformed into the image of Christ. 
So um, I have a whole diatribe of what I could reveal some things there, show you what that means. But um, just remember, it's, the goal is not that one of those is better than the other or that this type person has to become like this type person. So one of those is not better than the other. Um, as radical as the request is that the father um, that, that the father is asked by the son, notice just this little bitty phrase there. And he divided his property between them. Jesus just doesn't go into a lot about the father. He comes with this radical request. And just says he divided his property between them. The response of the father is even more shocking and radical than the request of the son. For this son to do this and this father that's respected regionally and have all these people that would know him and all these servants and all his wealth, and then for word to pass around that this younger son came and and said, Father, I I want all your stuff, and I'm going to go away as if you didn't even exist. And for the father to say, granted, take it all. Think how radical that is. Now, um, have you ever had someone do something so horrible to you, something um, so destructive and hurtful that you really can't even comprehend that they would have done this? Someone to do something that's so painful and hurtful that you would have never guessed that these people or this person would have done that. This is exactly what the listeners would have expected the father in the story to be going through. The listeners understood that this the situation real clearly. Um, this was the, the pain of rejected love. They saw this very clearly. Think through this father. Would he be looked at as a very good father in the church? If this son so shockingly betrays the father and acts in such outright rebellion, let's just be honest. What's this say about this father and his spiritual parenting? Do we do that? See a kid at 20 or 21 who starts going through some things? Well, you know, that's probably because his dad did this. You know, I noticed that they do this. Well, she, his, his mom, she struggles with this, you know. So you see what we do? Man, that's a completely different human being. Yeah, they can have certain tendencies to be like moms or dads or anything, but we quickly judge parents, even maybe in this story. And that's what's offensive. We want controls here. What kind of father was he? If the son would rather choose horrible living versus enjoying the family and the father... What did the father do wrong? The son disgraced his father publicly and personally. What kind of father lets that happen and just goes, there you go, son. Take it. Is he afraid of grace? Who's the father representing in Jesus' story? It's the heavenly father, right? Are you okay with that story? You okay with God the Father? Because Genesis 3 paints a real clear picture. Why did he put that tree right there? Why didn't God just give them all the beautiful things, all they needed? Here's 100 bullet points or 50 or 10 lists to keep. Why did he put that opportunity for sin there? 
Why did he place them where they could actually what if and go down the path of sin? Is that a, is that a good father? Maybe he understands what true love is better than we do. So I always have to do this because I, I, I go to logical consequences and people go, man, it sounds like you're saying that this. Well, first of all, yeah, God did do that. So a logical consequence of that, logical outworking. So are you saying that with our kids we should just, you know, let them walk around, you know, 100-foot cliffs? Not what I'm saying. Are you saying we should just, you know, put drugs in front of our kids? Not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying in this story, and it seems like God through the Bible expected his people to come to a place where they began to love him even in the midst of all the other idols around. Do you know what a slap in the face that is to Satan who thought that he was God? All that you could tempt them with, they're going to choose me. They're going to discover me as greater than all of the sin. So I, I believe that's this point of like this line of irresistible grace where God doesn't get a person up and like force them like he pushes a button at 22 and like, oh, I, I wasn't really wanting to, but I guess I'll follow Jesus now. Like, I don't believe that. I believe that there's all these things going on and the human will is very, very powerful and God has this beautiful, beautiful, irresistible grace and we go, man, this sin is so alluring, but you know what, Jesus, if this is true about you, I want to walk away from that because you are worthy of that. Grace and Jesus becomes irresistible. And so God places them in this situation. So um, it doesn't sound like this father is very fit spiritually. Does Jesus not understand what kind of character that he's making this father out to be? Obviously, he wouldn't fit, fit well in, in, in our, many of our churches, right? You'd have the, the, the people going over like, keep your kids away from him. You know what that one kid did, right? These are all good questions that sometimes we don't ask of the text. Jesus is revealing the forgiveness of the Trinity. The Father endures not only the loss of honor and embarrassment, but also the pain of rejected love. Jesus is wanting us to see that. Go ahead, son. Take it. Take everything. What if he goes and destroys his life and dies? Every person God's created, that's an option, right? That's a situation that can happen. And even his sovereign, beautiful power, man's human will. Don't be afraid of the reality of man's human will. He didn't create robots. Um, Keller said this, The father knows that the son is not really sick of home, but he's sick with sin. Man, relationships you've got, your little kids, your older kids, your college kids, your adult kids, relationships at work, sometimes that's not the deal. Maybe it's not they're sick of you or sick of home. They're sick with sin. And that takes the personal part out of it, and you just see it as it's just sin. If you're out there and you're in that first group, I hope you see the picture here that the Father lets sick sinners go their way and no amount of control or isolation is going to change that heart. I've got a lot of older brothers who do not like that statement. Like, I do not like that idea that my control and isolation won't keep them, keep them, keep them. This father is not afraid of grace. How do we usually respond 
when we were hurt and dishonored. Usually we get angry, usually we retaliate, but, but notice this father. Go ahead, son. Not afraid of grace. So notice the departure of the son. Look what the son does. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Here's the play on words. And when he had spent everything, so there's this idea of this prodigal, reckless living, and he had spent everything. Two key phrases that Luke puts in there as a little bit of wordplay. If you study a lot of hermeneutics, a lot of the gospel writers, well, especially like a guy like Luke, they will do wordplays. Even the Old Testament, they'll use words that kind of like, here's my point. And so um, he spent everything. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens. And so... Think through this story. You've got the Pharisees and tax collectors, and then you've got this this group of sinners sitting around, and all of a sudden, Jesus is telling this story, and both crowds are listening, and and he gets to this point, and and both parts of the crowd are just halted because he just did something that you usually don't have a, a teacher or a rabbi do. He digs into the most sensitive, offensive levels of people's hearts. In two sentences, he he tells this story. This formerly good little Jewish boy goes and works for an unclean ethnicity as a servant working with pigs. Clean little Jewish boy. All you Jews understand that? Pharisees, scribes, how long has it been since you had bacon? This isn't Jim Gaffigan that he's, he's you know, working for, that, who just loves bacon. This is this, is this Jewish crowd, Pharisees, scribes, the, and the, the sinners. Everyone knows this is a crazy story. He's shattering categories as he's going through this. The clean Pharisees would consider this story almost unforgivable. A Jewish man hired out to an unholy citizen, an unclean citizen of another ethnicity, who makes him work with pigs, but, but even the dirty lowlifes, the sinners, they would have been caught off guard and halted by Jesus' story. So it's, you, know, you could just see them like, hey, Jesus, man, I know that you know, um, you know, John over there was telling stories about, you know, telling some jokes about prostitutes and priests, but you don't have to go off. <laughs> you went a little bit too far in bringing up a, a good little Jewish boy going to work for someone else and then working with pigs. You went too far, man. This is how offensive this would have been to them. And so we don't have that understanding of their cultural landscape. If we had just 5% of the understanding of the type of disgust and hate that Jews had for these other peoples. So this disrespectful rebellion, rebellious son is one thing, but where he's landed is another. The type of people that he's surrounded by, completely offensive to this crowd. Disgusting to them. Again, we can't get in that cultural mindset, but we, we can apply it to today. So, so who discusses you? Who are the people you hate and are disgusted by? We could get really honest. Who has the church taught you to be disgusted by? Maybe even good-intentioned, well-meaning parents. Who have they taught you? to hate and be disgusted by. Could pull out the old evangelical hate dash, uh, dartboard. You know, the old evangelical hate 
dartboard and just start throwing. There's, there's lots of different categories up there we could throw some darts at. Uh, the, the druggies, the, the drunks, the sexually immoral, the you know, Hollywood types, maybe, maybe for some the liberals, liberal media. Maybe it's a political, the, the Democrats, maybe it's a party for you. Maybe it's the LGBTQ activists, the, the abortionists. But thank you, we're, suppo- we're supposed to, hey, aren't we supposed to? Muslims, Black Lives Matter activists, liberal, whatever category, feelings of disgust are alive and well in today's evangelicalism. And if we're not careful, we're discipling people into it. We skim over that first statement. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. We justify our disgust, masking it as holiness, when the Holy One came to be around and die for all the disgusting, both us and others. The guy telling the story is the one who's telling the story about forgiveness, and they don't, the crowd doesn't even realize it, and in just a couple of years, he's going to be dying to bring everyone back to God. Some thinking their rule-keeping is doing it, others not even caring. What if the very people you despise and slander and make it a point to have nothing to do with are the very people Jesus would be going to with grace? The church hasn't handled this very well the last 50 or 60 years. We've become an island, and, and the message that, that they hear, not inside the church, we would not say that we we're tr- trying to communicate this, but what lost people feel and hear is clean yourself up. If you clean yourself good enough, then you can come to our island. We'll check you at the door. We don't think we're doing it in lots of ways, but that's what lost people hear. And so some of you may go, no, I don't think that's what I do. How long were you outside the church? How long were you living in lostness outside the church? Ask some of those people. Don't ask Sunday school teachers. Don't ask the family that was, has never left the church and were in the church all the time. Ask people that have been out of the church or maybe never in the church. We live in the Bible Belt. Go to people on the West Coast or the Northeast and ask them what they think the message is often portrayed as. For younger brother types, this guy is beyond anything that they would even imagined. He's not only working as a servant with this ethnically unclean person, he's working with swine, the most detestable thing, most unholy, unclean thing, and he's now not only working with them, it gets worse. He is desiring to have their food. Have you ever been around a, a pig farm? Uh, my sister has some. Then I had a friend when I was growing up, and they had one, and we had to go out and, and kind of clean the troughs and do stuff. So not only the mud, but if you've seen pigs eat, look at the design of their face. Like, it's just unfortunate. And they've got this big trough, and the way that they eat, and so this guy is sitting there going, man, that looks really, really good. He's looking for satisfaction, and he didn't find it. So younger brother types... Sin will take you further than you ever imagined. It will race you to places that you never saw yourself going. It will lead you to places that are filled with destruction and hurt where where gross stuff now looks appealing. For younger brother types, I want you to hear that. The desire for autonomy, I just want to do things my way, that is exalting yourself as God in your own life. 
So for younger people, for kids, for some adults, maybe you're still doing that. It's exalting yourself as God in your own life. I will choose what's right and wrong for me. I will choose. I'll I'll try to be a decent person, but I will make the decisions unless there comes something so enticing and so alluring, I'll change the rule then and adapt it. And then I'll go after that. You shut up and sit down. I'll be God. I'll let you know when a crisis comes, and then I may call on you again. But I want autonomy, and no one ever thinks that that's what they're doing to God. And that's the mindset of the younger brother. So we see this boy, this young boy, um, who is now realized he's, he's broken, he's, he's far and separated from the father. He realizes that he is, um, have, has nothing to live for, horrible situations. He's even disgust, desiring disgusting um, pig food. And now we'll see the turn. What many would talk about, this is where repentance and confession of sin happen. And so look there, verse 17. But when he came to himself, and so right there is this idea of of this turning point. So um, how many of my father's hired hands, servants, have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. So right there is this idea that I'm aware of this holy, righteous standard. So this is this picture that Jesus is throwing in there, that there is this righteous standard, that that God's law is the thing that's convicting him. I realize there's the standard. I'm not living by it. I've sinned against heaven, God's law, and against you, Father. So you see confession of sin. You see a desire for repentance to change. and, And you see this follow through to where he's going to go and confess that to his father. Um, Beautiful pictures there. Um, At this point, he has no idea about the overwhelming, exceedingly reckless grace and love that the father's going to pour out on him. Notice his realization of unworthiness. He says in verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be, be called your son. Just treat me as one of the hired servants. The reality is that none are worthy. None would be able to make it back to God on their own. And this son gets an idea of that. The father is all about lavishing grace on his son, so delighted and exuberant, but the son has no idea that this is the return. So for for all of us, whether you're the older brother type or whether you're the younger brother type, whatever period that you get into in life and, and you start getting down a path, remember, notice this story It's not about you cleaning everything up first, getting all your life straightened up first, and then him accepting you. The point is at the moment of you're feeling convicted and and you're wanting to repent and change, cry out to him immediately. Notice the response of the father. Um, As the father comes out, the son comes with this whole idea of wanting to um, confess all these things and has this whole outline of things uh, that he wants to bring out to the father. Um, This is not a, a lesson on parenting. This is not a lesson on three quick rules to change behavior in your kids or your family members. This is Jesus in his own view on unmerited grace towards two types of people. Notice more laws or trying to force consequences was not, was not 
what changed this kid's heart? Was it? There was the natural consequences of his life that brought about this change of repentance. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. Don't miss what I'm saying. So you may be an older brother type going, are you saying we're just supposed to have no consequences? Never said that. Saying in this story, Jesus paints a picture of a very unafraid of graced father, and the kid goes out and lives horrifically, and the father doesn't try to put more controls and more isolation on it. He goes, I'll see. That, that's tough. Because we usually want more rules, more limits, more control. And that's what, in that equation, will lead to this outcome. Maybe you've had something like that in your own life to where we get to the point and you're realizing, man, I've, I've got so far down this path. Or maybe it's people around your life um, that you just see. Are, are you communicating the good news of the gospel of grace or are you communicating to them just, you're dead, the law, the law, the law, the law, and not the gospel of grace? Sometimes in our camps, we're, we're, we want people to understand the consequences, so we just communicate to them bad news, bad news, bad news, and we forget that, that Jesus brought grace and truth. And that it's not just about just the consequences that will turn them around, but it, it's, no, the good news of grace. And so um, think through that as you're thinking through people around your life. Um, the guy telling the story then goes into, notice what he says, as his father was a long way, as he was still a long way off, the son is a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So think through this. No father, no Middle Eastern father, who was a um, respected man in his community, wealthy man, would have picked up his robes and started running off to this field to meet this despicable, dirty, disgusting, rebellious son. So as this crowd's listening, there's this picture that Jesus is painting of this father who's sliding up his robes. Middle Eastern men don't do that. And then just run. So this is, again, just the idea of this reckless, extravagant, overflowing grace to go and get. What would it cost to go and get this son? And immediately as the son gets there and tries to start listing out things, Father, I've done this, I've done this. The father will have none of it. Immediately he, he absorbs him and says, you're back in the family. And in the Greek there, it's this picture of this beautiful hug and this sloppy wet kiss and, and just this beautiful thing that, again, in that culture was not the norm. And then he goes into put the ring on his finger, get him the, the, the robe, um, let's kill the fattened calf. All of that saying, you are at my table. You are my son. Even though you had done all this stuff, I love you. Immediately you see the love of the Father. So it's not about, hey, Father, I get to list out all these things I've done. I get to go through all my shame and my guilt. And so sometimes people are really stuck on that. They're just stuck in the shame, just stuck in the guilt. Sometimes, sadly, in our little camps um, of theology, we, we're some of the worst at it. So when you talk to people, they're not enjoying the grace of God. They view God as this miserly judge who's never, ever pleased with them, and he's really just barely tolerating them because of Jesus. That's not the story of the Bible. 
What was he doing with Israel? Did they mess up two or three times? Continually. Why was he coming after them? Because he loved them. Why did he come after you? Because he loved you. You, you don't earn more love for God by, by proving to him that you know the doctrines of depravity. You don't earn more love from God by proving to him that you understand the doctrines of depravity. Show him that you understand overwhelming grace just absorbed in his arms. Show him that you understand that. Live a life like that. It may help in not being so afraid of grace. The story goes on. The father says, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There's no amount of sin, no matter how disgusting, that this father's love cannot cover. The younger son is not the wildest character in the story. The father is. Jesus is painting a crazy picture of this father. This would not happen. This wouldn't happen in our culture. Think through people in your life, if a really respected person, a really wealthy person, they've got it all together and their son and daughter has went off in crazy living. What does the town say if that person just with, with abandonment, just almost like reckless abandonment, like doesn't matter, I'm, I'm embracing him. Uh, uh, I wouldn't do that. I would counsel you to make sure, here's the steps, because they're probably going to do this. What if, what if, what if, Right? Again, Jesus isn't telling a story on parenting. He's talking about God's overflowing grace. And sometimes we have a hard time with that. We have to be careful in our theology camp. There's a tendency to see God as that miserly judge barely tolerating you. Um, we have to be careful um, and make sure that we're, we're not telling people or accidentally communicating that God barely tolerates us and that he, he really doesn't love us. He just loves the Jesus in us. So I've even heard a couple of guys before that had said that, staff guys even, and I was like, oh my gosh, the, the whole Bible completely refutes that. There is nothing that you would do to earn merit towards salvation. There is nothing that you'd be able to work towards in salvation with God, but you're made in the image of God. He loves you. The whole New Testament, the, the very crowd that Jesus is sitting in there going, hey, you Pharisees and scribes, you tax collectors, neither one of you groups understand, but in a few days I'm going to the cross for your sake. And Jesus is bringing that all out. Don't let your camp of theology lead you to a worm theology that there is nothing for God to love in you. Um, don't let your theology diminish your understanding of this unfathomable love of God. You've gone too far. You've gone hyper-depravity. Don't let your theology lead you to forget that God loves us because every person is created in the image of God. God has value and worth in his heart for them, and God lavishes his common grace upon all people. Sadly, in our camp, when we even say that, that God loves you and has value and worth placed on you, what we do in our camps, we go, oh, God, that sounds like that extreme hyper-charismatic stuff where it's just me, 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 me. It's all about me. No, it's not. But if you drop that, you've completely missed it. And we think we're doing better by, by, by almost saying, like, oh, I'm just really proud to say that I know that God hates us all. I'm really proud. I'm showing you, God, that I know that you hate us all. That's what you're doing sometimes. So 
Jesus becomes the treasure and reward for people living in reckless, extravagant rebellion for God. As Keller says in, in the book, Jesus' purpose is not to just warm our hearts, but instead to shatter our categories. Shatter our categories of thoughts about God, about sin, and about salvation. So, in closing, um, there could be some younger brother types here. Um, probably a lot of older brother types. Could be some younger brother types. Um, a good chance several of you are, are maybe even lost today. Some may know all the bullet points about Jesus. You, you've got them memorized. You know the, the bullet points of the gospel. You attend regularly or you're, you're very religious. Um, maybe you partic- participate of the Lord's Supper. You've been baptized. You've prayed the prayer. But you're not captivated by Christ at all. And if we're not careful, we know the bullet points and, and we're, we're making our list and we're trying and trying and trying and trying to be approved and trying and trying and trying to be approved. And it's exhausting to the soul. Maybe your younger brother type or older brother types. From God this morning, he's wanting us to see this beautiful picture of this father waiting to embrace that heart that's turning, waiting to embrace and love. You're my son. You're my daughter. Don't let your theology turn that into this this works-based kind of weird pseudo thing where we think that God's more approved of us by the more knowledge points we have instead of just understanding his beautiful grace. We're going to take some time for you to just uh, respond. If you um, are far off and separated from God, this story brings out the beauty of Him being the one, the Spirit being the one that brings confession of sin, that brings repentance, that brings um, this idea. ability. The Holy Spirit is what opens the door for that. So we're going to give some time for you just to respond to that for a couple minutes, and then we'll go into our time of the Lord's Supper. So um, let me pray, and then I'm going to give you guys some time to pray.